Hi, my name is Carol, and I'm a very grateful and enthusiastic member of Al-Anon. I love it. Uh, Al-Anon has given me everything that I have in my life today, and if I had everything to do all over again that I did from the first to the last before I got here, I would do it all and change nothing to have what I have in this room right now. I want to thank Vicki and her committee and uh, the young people for asking an old broad. And <laughs> when she called to ask me, I said, oh, I'm sure you must have a mistake. You must have made a mistake because I'm an old broad. And uh, she said, no, no, we haven't, you know. And uh, so I was uh, delighted to come. Uh, I have another uh, gift in my life. I'm a lady that grew up believing in fairy tales, and I continue to do that now and on. And uh, I'm one of those that used to sing, Someday My Prince Will Come, and I want to introduce you to my husband who's in the audience, and his name is Dick Thornton, and uh, he is my prince, and he's a direct result of the 12 steps of this program, a god of my understanding, he's got a sense of humor, <laughs> and uh, a lot, a lot of fun, let me tell you. My story is uh, no different than... Uh, than anyone else's that ever lived with drinking. You know, I was uh, born out on, uh, like so many of us, I was born responsible. I want to move this mic, but my very good friend is here, Bill and Marty. <laughs> and I know he's going to look at me funny, but I feel like it ought to be up. Uh, I was just looking at Helen and another young lady that I met. If, uh, I want to tell you right off the bat, if drinking would have worked for me, if it would make me, have made me short, blonde, and voluptuous, like I always thought I should be, uh, I would have been a drunk because I gave it my best shot. I tried everything that most Alanese do to to keep up, to to make up, to fess up, to fight up, to do anything before I got here. But like I told you, I was born Alanon. I'm, I'm a member of a large family. I have five brothers and a sister. And uh, my father was a career army man, and I said, the things that I'm going to share with you today are a direct result of a four-step written inventory done with the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous and written in the four-column method. And uh, I know that is not conference-approved for Al-Anon, but uh, you can write to New York if you like. Uh, they can't throw me out of Al-Anon. And uh, uh, everybody has to work their program in their own way and taste. And for me, it was necessary to do it with the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous because I'm a history buff by nature, and uh, and before Al-Anon was formed, what we had was Alcoholics Anonymous, and so I'm forever grateful for the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, because it's gotten me through some really tough times. The only difference between the programs, and I was uh, told this early on by my uh, first sponsor, was that Alcoholics Anonymous teaches alcoholics to live without drinking, and Al-Anon teaches me how to live. And uh, that was the difference pointed out to me. And you see, I'm as comfortable in Alcoholics Anonymous meetings as I am in Al-Anon meetings and as I am in Open LLC meetings. My, uh, and that's a real gift. I don't delete my program by going to anything else. But the labels that I can tell you about in my life are a direct result of that written four-step. If you haven't done one, I suggest you get busy. But if you don't, it's your loss. No one's going to make you do anything. I can only tell you what I tell anyone I sponsor. Cain has strict ways of making you able to take, pick up the magic paper and pencil and start on your journey through life, because that's where the beginning for me. 
But I was um, born in this large family, and I hated it. I uh, did not like being a girl because I had five brothers, and they were fun to run with, and they had to take me everywhere, and uh, I just loved it. I can shoot a BB gun, whistle for a cab. I can do all those things that, <laughs> that uh, boys do. I played basketball, baseball, and I was good in all sports, and uh, my dad was my swimming coach for years, and uh, uh, my dad was a very uh, quiet man, and... Uh, he was, uh, as I remember him, I always felt that he did not love me. And so it made up one more time for those three on-on thoughts that I had to be better than, perfect at, and it set me up to start feeling unwanted and loved and alone long before I ever got to Eleanor, or long before I met the man who was responsible for getting me to Eleanor. I'm forever grateful to that man today, and that's something I never thought I would say either. But we traveled a lot being in the service, and uh, I hated that. I hated being the new kid in school. I hated being the tallest in the, in the uh, line. I was always at the back of the line uh, and uh, always tall and skinny and uh, made fun of a lot, and I hated that. I find that even in my inventory. I hated being mimicked or made fun of, and uh, that's just a carryover from those old days. My feelings are no different from the alcoholic, you see. None at all. I started feeling unwanted, unloved, and alone long before I got here and long before I met him. And uh, it began for me a world of pretend. Let's pretend. And uh, so I pretended. Uh, everyone in my family has a marvelous sense of humor. I realize today it's a gift from God, and I misused it all my life when I got into the program. All my life. I used it as killer talk. I had a tongue as sharp as a knife. And uh, that's the way I got along with my uh, uh, brothers. And uh, I didn't get to do that much at home because I'm from the old, old, old age you know, where when parents said no, they meant no, and uh, <laughs> children were seen and not heard, and in our house, girls did all the work. I was the only girl for a long time, and so uh, I still have a love for ironing, which most families find real weird, but uh, <clears throat> I like to iron and cook and do all those things. There's only one thing about it, I can cook for a large amount of people much better than I can for two. <laughs> so I still do five pounds of potato salad, but someday I'm going to grow up. And uh, <clears throat> learn better. Who knows? I'm just trying it out a day at a time. But anyway, I had all those feelings. And uh, when we moved to New York, my father decided that he would put me into a convent to become a lady. Now, I, you might not think that's strange, but uh, my parents are not Catholic. And uh, I thought it was strange. And uh, my brothers did not have to go to a private school. My sister, who came along nine years after I did, was the baby of the family. And she was... Uh, Everything that I wanted to be, she was tiny, and she was cute, and she, she could just do no wrong. And uh, now I understand that, being a mother myself, that the baby will always be the baby of the family, and they will always get special treatment. That's just as simple as it can be. When I look at my son, and uh, there are times when I choose not to look at him, uh, I'm like this kid today, you know, my son has a habit when he doesn't like someone, he paints a mustache on his family album with hangs in his hall, on the picture. <clears throat> and uh, I'm as bad as he is because uh, when I got angry with him not too long ago, and I'm still capable, because I'm a human being first, I uh, went into my hallway where his portrait hangs, and I had such fun painting a mustache on him and putting that sign that means uh, <laughs> don't smoke or don't look or whatever it is that that round circle with the line through it. And I just, uh, for a whole hour, I colored out there with a marking pen. And, uh, but I've grown up enough to know today that I wiped it off before the company came. <laughs> I'm weird. 
But uh, it felt good. That's what I mean. It felt good, and it worked for me, too, so I can see where maybe it worked for him. But anyway, I didn't like this little sister, and uh, she didn't have to go to pilot school, and uh, my brothers didn't have to go to pilot school, but I was stuck in this convent, and I hated it. Uh, one of the nuns there was the meanest woman I'd ever met in my life. Uh, I carried her handprint for a solid week my first day in her class. We had been warned ahead of time about her, and uh, uh, I, uh, I challenged her a little bit, and... Uh, and uh, she just put me straight right there. And let me tell you, I was 42 years old before I chewed gum. Uh, and even today, I only chew half a stick just in case she's around. <clears throat> because I got caught chewing gum and she made me take a bite of uh, GI soap or Fels Maps or whatever you want to call it. And uh, I had to chew that and swallow it. And uh, I didn't chew gum until I was 42, let me tell you. Uh, she also did not care for me whistling with my fingers. But anyway, uh, I had a lot of fun with that woman, and she has remained one of my very dearest friends. She recently spent uh, two weeks with Dick and I. She was on her way to an Alaskan cruise, and uh, she was here the summer of my divorce, Anna, and she was here the, uh, the winter of my wedding to Dick, and she was here this last summer. And uh, she's not a mean old lady, and uh, she's not much older than I am, and uh, She's a loving, kind human being, and we, we may, kept that relationship. And I know today, because it was my, my one form of normalcy in my life, we wrote up, up for years, and uh, she shared all the good and bad uh, with me all through these years. And uh, she just absolutely loves what she sees in me through Alan and what she sees in my husband through Alcoholics Anonymous, because we have a program home today. But as we were traveling around, I'm just get back to where I began, because I skip around, and that's okay. If you can't keep up, you can just ask me later, and maybe I'll remember. Uh, that's kind of the way my life is. I live my life spontaneously today, a day at a time, and uh, that's, that's, that's what I've learned in these rooms. But anyway, we traveled a lot, and we ended up in New York, and I was in this convent, and uh, I went to high school in Europe, and when we came home from Europe, my father uh, settled up north in an army post up here, and... Uh, and I was uh, out of high school at 16 and working on that army base. And the one rule in our family was I was not allowed to date army men and, uh, or anyone in the service. I could not date till I was 16 years old. I thought my father hated me. I could not wear makeup till I was 16. I didn't know how to do my hair. I wore braids wrapped around my head till I was 16 years old. And I had an aunt, my favorite aunt, the only aunt I have. My mother has one aunt, one sister, and 11 brothers. So uh, boys tend to run in that family. And she taught, she cut my hair and taught me how to do it. And uh, I'm forever grateful to that lady because uh, God having a sense of humor, I married and moved just a few blocks from her. And I get the benefit of having a, a blood relative uh, not too far from me. Uh, and uh, that's another bonus of this program. The, uh, I was a very busy kid and very uh, busy in all areas of my life. And uh, I had a friend who called and said, uh, how would I come here to the football team practice? And... Uh, Pick out someone you'd like to go out with. And uh, so I did. And uh, and uh, that's how I met the God of my understanding. And uh, I was uh, 16 years old, and he was tall and blonde and uh, handsome and blue-eyed and dimpled and uh, nice teeth. Sounds like a horse, huh? And uh, <laughs> he was everything that an ugly duckling would want. You see, I felt ugly. I thought ugly. And I became ugly in my eyes. I just knew that nobody would want someone like me. 
I grew up with only one thought in mind. I wanted to grow up, get married, and have a whole lot of kids because I like big families because of the fun. I still do. And today I have an even bigger one than I ever dreamt of. But uh, that's what I wanted to do. And uh, let me tell you, when I met him, he was the God of my understanding. He was everything a young girl could want. And I thought, oh, God, aren't I lucky that he wants little older than me. And, uh, you know, that's how I entered into that relationship. That's how I entered into the engagement for two years. That's how I ended up in, in our marriage. Uh, I spent 26 and a half years uh, wondering what was wrong. <clears throat> what was wrong with me? Because he was perfect. And that is sick, let me tell you. I had no quarrel being sicker than the alcoholic. A lot of Valenons don't like to hear that. But that I am telling you my story, my feelings. And I have no quarrel with that, you know. At least the things he did, he did drunk. And I have no excuse for mine. I was so sober. <laughs> and uh, my children don't remember uh, the bad times with their daddy. But I'll tell you what they do remember is the crazy times with their mother. They never forget that. And because mothers spend more time, whichever, whoever's doing the drinking, the ones that's not doing the drinking get to spend the most time with the kids. That's what children remember. My own drinking did not bother my children because they had more sense than their mother. They knew better than to bother their father when he passed out in front of the television set. Not me, buddy. I went in and changed that set. It was necessary for me to start something, to make him see how I felt. And yet I never, ever, in all those years, took a look at the drinking until I got to Eleanor. Never, ever blamed it on the drinking. I thought it was something I did or didn't do. If I was short, if I was blonde, if I was luxurious, if I was a better mother, so you become a good mother. If you were a better wife, so you become a really good wife. If you were a better pta -er, so you're in PTA. I was in business and professional women. I was in all the sororities, any club that would have me, I was busy in. Plus, I was a perfect mother. I made my own bread twice a week because that's what good mothers did. My children never carried uh, store-bought dessert in their lunches. They carried my baked stuff because that was what good mothers did. I did auntie ironing. I took care of that family. Uh, you could eat off my floors, but no one wanted to. Uh, I was perfect in all those areas. I was just perfectly crazy. I was just absolutely nuts. You know, and before we married, we talked a lot because if there's one thing about an alcoholic, and I have the right to call him an alcoholic today because he's a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous in another state, for which I'm grateful, and <laughs> it's an honest program, and Bill don't, don't Marty know my story. <laughs> but uh, it was something that I prayed for, and he's sober today to uh, do that, and uh, and I'm grateful for that. But anyway, uh, this perfect man that I was living with, uh, I know today he he was alcoholic from the word get go when I first met him. But you see, I saw nothing wrong with drinking. My folks drink. They're not alcoholic. I've never seen them raise their hand in Alcoholics Anonymous and say my name is Mom or Dad and I'm an alcoholic. I don't have the right to call them an alcoholic unless they do, you see. And that was pointed out to me so very early, and I'm so grateful for that because I don't have any of those hang-ups about I'm the way I am because my mom put me on the toilet seat wrong. I'm the way I am because my folks did the best they could with what they had, and I feel the same way about my children. When I talked to this man before, while we were engaged, and we were engaged for two years, so I count the whole 26 and a half years, uh, I told him the things I wanted out of life, all my big dark secrets, all the things I was afraid of, everything. He wanted no children for four years, and uh, I'm here to tell you that I didn't have any problem with control. I have four, 
the first two are 15 months apart, and there's a few years in there, and then the next two are 15 months apart. And uh, so I had the things that I wanted, not what he wanted, you see. And uh, I didn't realize that controlling and manipulating. I didn't know I had any labels like that then. But uh, I know this. I wanted what I wanted. And, uh, and, and being as sick as both of us were, we just fed off one another off this disease. You know, I became far, far sicker, quicker than he did. And, uh, and I had no idea what was going on. I was like a crazy lady. I was working full time. I had a full time career. Besides this, I worked every, since I was 14 years old, up until the time I, I, uh, uh, married. And, uh, anyway, uh, I worked full time and took care of these kids. And two of those four children are crippled children, torture kids. And I'll tell you what I did about that. I hated God. I thought that God was punishing me, first of all, because I was pregnant when I got married. Secondly, after a while down the road, I thought he was punishing me because I'd married a Southern Baptist. That's worse than being pregnant. <laughs> For a Catholic, because by that time, I had become a Catholic. I was a bead-picking, candle-burning Catholic when I got here. St. Jude and I are still on a first-name basis, although I no longer call the shots in that relationship with God. But I hated God because I thought he was one more time punishing me for something that I hadn't did. And he could do a lot of things to me. But why take it out on my children? So I became a real nut about those kids. I was responsible for all their care besides working. And uh, both those children are total, absolute miracle. They are both fully happy, fully alive, functioning human beings today. And I know that, that God does not do those things. God does not punish these kids. He does not punish. He does not judge. We do a far better job of that than he ever thought of. And uh, my God, I don't know about yours, is the lover. He loves me no matter what I do, no matter where I go, no matter what I'm, what I'm up to. And he loves me whether I'm naughty or nice. And that I learned in Al-Anon. And that's important to me today. But that's then I didn't have any program. I had a faith, and I'm real grateful that that faith uh, and that religion, I should say, wasn't faith, it was I heard someone on the dating game say the other day, I never watched that show, but I was uh, up at a shop where they had it on, and someone said to this young man behind the screen, said, uh, you sound like uh, you're a Catholic. Do you have any problem with Catholicism? And the kid said, no, nah, I'm full of guilt. <laughs> I love it, you know. When you go to parochial school in the convent, you major in guilt and minor in shame. And uh, at least I did. That's the way I grew up. Everything nice was a sin. I mean, all the good stuff, you know. And uh, I was talking to a friend of mine, uh, Marcella, the other day, and, and uh, she said, where are you going? I said, well, I'm going to Las Vegas. And uh, she said, you know, you really make that old thing come true. Good girls go to heaven and bad girls go everywhere. <laughs> That's why you got me here today. <laughs> I like being bad and I like being naughty. It's even more fun. But anyway... Uh, through this marriage, all those things that go on in a, in a drinking home went on and on. There are lots of things that go with drinking. Bad sex go with drinking. Sex to the liquor store have a magic suit. I don't know how they get cleared, but ours always did. Sex to the grocery stores and other places don't. That's what I found out through the years. Uh, problems with taxes go with drinking. Sometimes they flop over into sobriety, you know. But, uh, uh, IRS is just, you know, one, one more thing. You know, we fought every year about the IRS. I had no idea to take a look at the drinking. He knew that I wanted to grow up and live in one town and grow old in that town, have my children go to school and their children go to school, and we're just going to be there forever because that's what I wanted. And, you know, we moved like uh, uh, 
20-some times in the years that I was married, and my husband was not in service. And uh, I did not understand that until I came to Alcoholics Anonymous Open Meetings and found out they were geographic. But you see, I didn't know that, you know. We moved a lot, and each time we moved, it would get a little better for a small period of time. But I can tell you this about alcoholism. Alcoholism is a fatal disease, and too often, members of Al-Anon forget this, the biggest amends, as far as I'm concerned, that any member of Alcoholics Anonymous can give another human being is the gift of sobriety in the program. Because if they never get another thing that is worth more than anything in the world, I have too many friends. All of us do, those love relatives out there who don't have that gift in their home. And it's tough, you know. If you think you have a bad lot living with a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous, you cry living with someone for 30, 40 years that's still drinking, you see. I didn't have that kind of unconditional love. But some people do, and some people can do it and work a fine program. So if you're waiting to get your amends from your spouse, you might not even be on the list. <laughs> I heard that the other day when someone was complaining to her husband about all his defects of character. She said, my God, you're this, 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 this. And he was just getting tired of it. And he had this big, long list. And he said, you know what? If I didn't have so many defects of character, I might have selected a better wife. And I thought, my God, that really puts you in your place, you know. Uh, you know, we're not perfect. And uh, I don't think we get each other by accident. I think it's a real gift. And if you're not... You know, if you're not working your program at home, honey, you missed it. <laughs> you have just missed it. That's what I was taught early, early on in this program, and I want to stress that because there's another thing about Al-Anon, just like Alcoholics Anonymous. The more you give in service, the more you get back. And if you are giving one meeting a week to your little schedule, then you're getting one meeting a week worth of serenity in your life. And if you're not... If you're not volunteering to be secretary, volunteering to be a rep, volunteering to do something at your meeting, you are not participating in life. You probably are one of those people that I dearly love to go. I, I am very fussy about my meetings, as uh, uh, a lot of my friends know. I am picky about my own on meetings. I go where they're having fun. I go where they haven't forgotten to notify their face that they're happy. I go where they're clapping and where they're laughing because that's what heals me. Laughter heals me. Before I could learn to laugh, that's what I had to do. I had to learn to laugh at the things I lied about all my life. I went to confession every week whether I needed to or not. Didn't even know what the problem was in my home. But I never, ever went to a priest who knew me. I always went to the one from out of town, the one that didn't speak English well, or the visitor. Because I surely didn't want them to know what was going on in my home. I didn't know what was going on in my home. Long absences sometimes go with drinking. I didn't know that, you see. He would disappear in the beginning just for short periods of time. Because in the beginning, the drinking wasn't bad. In the beginning, I could feed him a large meal on Sunday and knew that he would not drink after that large meal. And there's one thing about alcoholism. It's progressive and it's steadily downhill. You know, I moved a lot, and I thought that was a big deal, and I got the privilege of hosting Ross Wilson, who is still alive and well today, at, I think, 95, close to it, who got an exercise bike for her 94th birthday. But anyway, uh, I told her that when we were uh, talking, and she said, uh, try moving 51 times in a year. Now, I'm no mathematician, but that's once a week. Yeah. 
and you see, so everything that I've done, that you've done, has been done by someone else, better, worker, easier, softer, it doesn't make any difference. But uh, throughout all these years of moving and stuff, I remained just as sick and just got sicker. It was just a progressive disease for me. Uh, sometimes other women go with drinking and uh, hideous, hideous jealousy. Now, I'll tell you something about our home. I could be cooking breakfast in the morning for a large number of people because we had big breakfast on Sundays. But there was a thing about making up, and I was angry about his drinking or about whatever happened. You know, I would get angry about his behavior. It wasn't the drinking I looked at, but when my husband drank, there would come a point to where I knew that when I got home, I was in trouble because he always treated me very well for a long period of time until the drinking got progressively worse in public, but it was at home where we had the problem. The minute the bedroom door closed, it would start. You see, I had four children, and if he was out of town on business, I made those four children sleep with me so that they could prove where I was, <laughs> as if he'd asked. And uh, he would come home, and he would move those children into the other room, and then he would rip the clothes, bed clothes off and say, where have you been? And I'd say, I've been here. And he'd say, no, you haven't. You know, and I would start. And now, when I look back and I know that that is part of the disease of alcoholism, but not all alcoholics are alive. Not everyone's afflicted the same. Elsie C. says it better than anyone I know. If God had made two of us exactly alike, one of us would be unnecessary. It's the same in Alcoholics Anonymous. No two alcoholics are alike. No, none of their home behavior is alike. I used to say if mine just drank at home and never left, uh, uh, I would have been fine. I'd still been there. He'd just come home, hand me the paycheck, and say, oh, I'm a little bit drunk. I think I'll go to bed. Well, mine never did that, you see. But I know now why. It was necessary for all those things. Physical violence goes with drinking in the home. It certainly did in ours. And let me tell you, I thought tough love was standing up to him. And he was a lot bigger than I am. Because like most Alanese before we get here, I had given up taking care of myself. I looked real good when I went out in the street to my job. And I worked with people all my life, and I was very pleasant, and I had a good personality, and I know why I worked all those years. I was damn grateful to get out of that house. <laughs> and I had excellent sitters, so I wasn't concerned about the children. They were in Catholic schools where they belonged, and uh, well taken care of, and they were perfect, perfect children. That's another thing. Kids that are raised in drinking homes are almost perfect, because they're so afraid of setting not so much the drinker, but the other one off that they really mind well. They have excellent manners. They learn how to say please, thank you, yes, sir, and no, sir, at least mine did. And uh, they were the only kids that ever went to a drive-in movie and all bucked up in their pajamas, but they never once got out to play on that equipment because he wouldn't allow it. They might get dirty. And uh, they had to be perfect because that's how I lived. I lived a perfect life. Everybody used to tell me, oh, God, Carol, you're so lucky to have him. And I used to say to him, I wish you did. And uh, you see, that's where my sarcasm came in. And I know today that it saved me. It saved it some semblance of sanity until I got to Al-Anon. But when I say other women sometimes go with drinking, that's true too, you see. And I thought that I, I just chose for years to block that out of my life. I didn't want to look at it. <clears throat> I have a... Uh, Al-Anon mother-in-law, I kept my mother-in-law when I got my divorce, my sister-in-law and all the, all the relatives I love, I didn't divorce them. And she told me years ago, when she was a visitor in my home, and uh, he had not shown up, he'd gone to work Friday morning, and uh, it was Sunday, and <clears throat> we were sitting there, and she said, uh, Carol, I want to ask you something. She said, uh, where do you think he goes? 
And I said, uh, I don't know, and uh, and I don't care. And uh, I said, it's, it's kind of like a blackboard, you know, with all this crap written on it. But the minute he shows up, and I could always hear the car coming a mile down the road and know how it was going to be. And, and I would always be there all the time. He says, one thing I did, I missed a lot of things with my children. Because I was so busy being obsessed by this man that I never went. They'd say, Mom, come on, go to the movies with this man. I'd say, no, I can't go to the movies. He might call, you know. And early on in our marriage, what I said to him was, if you would just call me and tell me, Carol, I'm going to stop for a beer with the boys, and I'll be home in a few hours, I would never say a word. Now, that's the biggest lie that ever came out of my lips. Because he tried me on it. And, you know, I was talking to a dead phone. He had hung up. And even today, I can't stand anyone to hang up my ear. It drives me crazy. It's an old idea. But anyway, that's, um, that was another thing. He, he tried all the things I asked him to do. He tried, and I always failed in all of them. Because, you see, I did not understand that alcoholism was slowly progressing in his life. And my disease was progressing more rapidly. I tried all the things. I went to marriage counseling. He drove me and waited in the parking lot because uh, it was my problem. So he thought that I ought to go. And uh, it took a lot, about six weeks until finally the, the priest said, You know, Carol, I don't know where you're coming from because uh, I've never met your husband. She said, But, you know, it takes two. It takes two in a marriage to create a problem. And uh, I thought about that a lot because, you know, in the beginning I'd say, how much has he had to drink? And he'd say, two. You see, the same reason is when you're fighting in the house, how many people does it start to take a fight? To start a fight, two. You know, when one of you stops playing and gets the knowledge, there's no fight in the family. I didn't know that until I got to Eleanor. But I chose to fight him any time because I knew I couldn't sleep while he was gone, so I stayed awake like all of us. I have a friend who said he thought his his wife was a light in the living room window because she was always there, you know. <laughs> and uh, I think all of us have our spots to waste. I, I spent years watching television, not remembering anything I saw, with a dog named Whatnot, and uh, that dog was just as affected as I was by alcoholism. He would fall asleep in my lap, and uh, I watched endless hours of Alfred Hitchcock, and I got to see my favorite replay of not long ago with this man. Uh, was so bad, and his wife uh, took a frozen leg of lamb, and she hit him and killed him, and uh, then she put it in the oven, and she cooked it, and the police came, and she invited them for dinner, and, and there was no weapon, and she lived happily ever after. Now, that's the way, that's the way I saw this, you see. I want to tell you that I, I thought of uh, killing him many times, you know. Murder is an ordinary thinking for people who live with drinking. Murder's ordinary thinking. Physical abuse is ordinary things. Child abuse is ordinary things. I am not happy to tell you that I allowed the child abuse in my home, but I knew did not know any better. If I'd have known better, I'd have done better. My son, the oldest boy, had been terribly whipped by his dad as a result of dirtying in his pants at school. I didn't. I got so I wouldn't believe the nuns because when I got to that doctor's office, I said, "I find it hard to believe that this child could do this." And he said, "Carol, this is his way of saying that something's wrong in your home, or it's." Somewhere. And I said, there's nothing wrong in my home. I said, my home is perfect. And there's certainly nothing wrong. It must be the nuns. And, you know, uh, the very next day, uh, I was out of town on business, and uh, the nuns called him instead of me. And he went and picked up that child, and he whipped him with a belt because he had been drinking. And I had to take that same young man back to the doctor. And that doctor said, Carol, you know, this is not right. You're, there's something going on. And I said, yeah. No, I said, I, I was raised that you don't interfere in the punishment of children, that you must agree as parents 
And he said, that's not true. This boy has been badly whipped. And uh, so I went home. And from that day to the day those boys left at home, I never allowed them to be touched by their father again. I got uh, real tough. I got a lot of guts. And what he did is he switched whipping boys. <laughs> and I've never been sorry for saving him that. I told him, you will never touch those boys again as long as you live, as long as you're drinking. And he never did. And, uh, you know, I was told... Uh, Every time something happened, and you know, in families, two girls and two boys, there was always a lot happening in our house, and uh, he said, those boys are going to be cheerleaders, and they're going to be fairies, and they're going to be this, and they're going to be that, because they both quit football in their senior year, and that was just something that, that big, strong boys didn't do, you know, and uh, I was just real happy to tell him that one of his cheerleading sons that paid his trip to California here this Christmas hadn't seen his father in 11 years, and... Uh, those boys are, are functioning human beings today, and they were, uh, he got, they paid their father's way to see their ran his grandchildren, and, uh, that's the same kid that was gonna be so bad because he couldn't whip them. And you see, I stopped that. And I became the whipping boy in our family, and I'm not sorry for that. I know today that I was not the cause of the alcoholism in my home, but I was a number one contributor to lack of knowledge. And my biggest enemy was my mouth. You see, my mouth was attached to the doorknob. When he entered, I started. It was just, that's just the way it went. I never gave him a moment's peace. I could hardly wait for the next day. I'd set the alarm two hours ahead so that sucker would have to get up early thinking it was time to go to work. And uh, that would give me two hours of fighting time, boy. And I was just raring to go to tell him all the things that he did and didn't do, you know. And uh, there's one thing about Alan. They got a memory like an elephant. I mean, if you want to know what you've done, ask them. <laughs> they can sure tell you. And I tried drinking with him, at him, against him, getting drunk first. And what they do is they just dump you at home when you've had enough, you know. I don't vomit easy. And I can count the times on one hand that I've been sick and it's all been trying to keep up, you see. If alcohol, alcohol would work for me and made me feel the way it works for an alcoholic, I would certainly have been one because I gave it my best shot. I tried everything. We went motelling every weekend to keep the romance in our marriage. So that was, that was a big uh, disappointment. Uh, I tried suicide twice in my life. I am not proud of that fact, but I'll tell you, I did not know there were suicide attempts until I got to Alan on my first Thanksgiving meeting. The topic was suicide. And what I had done is we had been motelling, and he did not like the way I was behaving, and so we had an argument. He struck me with a shoe, and I lost a lot of blood. And I would not go to the hospital, thank you, because I could not think of a lie to tell those nuns of what had happened to my head. I had been there many times. I am forever grateful that I've dark skin because bruises don't show so bad. And uh, I had to learn to, to use a little bit of makeup in those days. But it was okay because, you see, I didn't know any other way to live. I just functioned. I just pretended to be a happy married lady. You know, we were just the pillar of the community. And let me tell you something about pretending like that. It can kill you. It can absolutely kill you. I had never heard of Alcoholics Anonymous or Al-Anon. We had moved to Southern California. The times were really bad. I had, uh, as I told you, tried to take my life. I had gone home and uh, took a whole bunch of old coding tablets thinking that if he would just stop shouting at me, that I would be able to make breakfast and get the children up for church because, that, you know, we were still in this thing that all good families, this family that prayed together, stayed together. He never went. We went. But anyway, I, that's the way I was raised. And, uh, you know, my folks never went to church. You know, they, they still don't. They're still not Catholic. But uh, if we didn't go to church, we couldn't do anything else. And that's the way I raised my kids. They don't go to Mass, they can't go out. 
It was real simple. You stay home from school, you're in bed all day. And uh, those were the rules in our house. And, you know, I missed a lot of times with those kids when they want me to go someplace, but I never would because I had to be home. I had to be home. There was something about being in that house. I was just absolutely crazy. Uh, I uh, got so sick before I got here. And uh, the second time that I had tried to, to take my life, I wound up in the in a hospital in Brea, and I woke up and I was connected to everything in the room. And I wondered if perhaps someone had come in and said, oh, Carol, you need to go down on, you know. I was not ready. I was not ready. I didn't know anything about it. I didn't know what was happening in my house. I just wanted to, I just didn't want anyone else to know. And so you just pretend until you're just absolutely bonkers. And that's the way my life went. I uh, had a sister-in-law, a sober member of uh, Alcoholics Anonymous in Dallas, and she was coming for a visit, and she, she arrived at our home, and uh, and I knew when 6 o'clock came that my husband was not coming home. And I was so embarrassed because I was such a snob. I was so embarrassed that he would do this to me in front of his mother and his sister, who I had not seen for years, uh, that when I got the call and found out that he had been picked up for drunk riding, and they had turned our car over to the four other drunks who were here, and uh, they brought that car home, I was so angry that I would not get him out of jail. It wasn't that I knew that I shouldn't get him out of jail. I was too embarrassed. I thought, I don't give a crap if he stays there forever, but I am not getting him out of jail. My sister-in-law said, would you be embarrassed to take me to an AA meeting? And I said, no. Uh, no, I didn't. You find out where it is, uh, just let me know and I'll go. Now that was the beginning, the first little piece in, in me, because I, by that time I was so paranoid about driving that I drove three places. I drove to church every morning, I drove to the cleaners on Saturday for his clothes, and to the grocery store. And those were the only three places I drove. And I know through my inventory that the reason I didn't like to drive was I was married to someone who didn't believe in insurance. And I had lived with that fear all my life. When my children turned 16 and got their license, they thought they were, their mother was a mad woman because I would just go off the deep end and they thought, God, she doesn't trust us. You know, what's wrong with you? And I couldn't, I didn't know that all I had to do was set those children down and talk to them and tell them what was going on because I didn't know what was going on. And when you don't know, you don't know. It's okay. That's what I learned. And so I had taken her to this Whittier meeting at the art gallery, and that night she ended up saying was a speaker. He was my first alcoholic anonymous speaker, and I'll tell you, I had not laughed, a belly laugh, since I had been at home with my family. I had not laughed that way, and I could not understand how he could stand up there and tell all those secret things, you know, all those horrendous things that, that you know, he could make light of, but I laughed anyway, and it was the beginning, the beginning of some semblance that there was, there was some hope sometimes. I love the hugging and I love the kissing that goes on in the area and I, I just love the camaraderie. I love the fellowship and I thought how wonderful they welcomed her as a sober member from Dallas and she stood up and they just clapped and it, it was just a marvelous, marvelous meeting. And I went home and whatever I found there I left there because I forgot all about it. And another few years I was at an open AA meeting and uh, with my friend, my first cousin, the bad one. <laughs> No. <laughs> the catalyst for me, anyway. But anyway, uh, I was at an AA meeting with him because he uh, went to Alcoholics Anonymous to save our marriage, and uh, that's what he told me, and that's what I believe. I believe everything that that man ever told me. He told me I was ugly, so I was ugly. He told me I was stupid, that made me stupid. He told me that I was no good, 
In the morning, I would be St. Carol out there cooking dinner, and by noon, I'd be the biggest camp in town, and I hadn't even left the kitchen. And I could never figure that out, you know. Today, I have a sponsor, and I always think about what he would have thought if I'd have said, you know, perhaps you're right, if he'd have been accusing me of all those things. And I can tell you this, if you're married to a violent alcoholic, and you're getting called all those marvelous names, uh, you have arrived. It's just a form of arrival, because uh, that's just a, an ordinary behavior for them. That's just all there is to it. And I know today that that stems from their own guilt. I found out also that other women didn't bother me. I used to say that, and that's not true. It stripped me of all my femininity. I hated being a woman when I got here. I didn't want any part of anything. I had no feelings whatsoever. And I know now, and I learned this in Alcoholics Anonymous, it means that uh, other women, or other men, whatever the case may be, uh, are usually lower companions. And that made my heart feel good. <laughs> so that's the way I choose to look at it today. It was necessary for me. And uh, it began a long road to recovery. But I had gone to this day meeting with him to save our marriage, and this lovely lady came up, and she patted me on the hand, and she said, Carol, you ought to come to Alamon. And I said, I can't, I work. And that was the end of it. I never, ever thought about it again. Now, a few years down the road, I want to tell you how I arrived at my first Al-Anon meeting in La Habra, California. And I will be forever grateful, forever grateful to Alcoholics Anonymous because my sister-in-law set me up for my first case of AA. And second of all, I ran away from home in the middle of the night. Now, I had run away before in the middle of the night, but I never went anywhere. I either went up in the garage hiding behind a large Mexican hat and or I went next door to my neighbors and hid underneath her car. Now, she was a lady whose husband was on a dialysis and cleaning up all the time, and she said, years later, we're still the best of friends, and she said, why in the world didn't you come in? I was up anyway, but I didn't want anyone to know, you see. I would run around and close the windows when he was shouting, and he would run around and open them up, and he played all those things. And that's what they are. They are games, you see. And when one of you comes here and gets the knowledge, you get to stop playing the games. But I arrived at my first hour on me because I had woke up at uh, 3 o'clock in the morning. I was completely covered in blood. I was black and blue from head to foot. had very few teeth, no glasses, and I had lost the hearing in one ear. And I know today it was a direct result of my mouth and lack of knowledge. The only thing I remember about that night before was telling him, and he offered me a drink. I said to him, I will never drink with you again as long as you live, as long as I live. And... Uh, he couldn't understand that because he said, you drink with your folks, you drink with your friends at church where you work, and, uh, you know, you do all these things. And I said, I just will not drink with you one more time. And that's the last thing I remember to this day. And I'll be in Allen on August 15th of this year, 12 years. And it's not necessary for me to remember what happened the night before. What's necessary for me is to remember that it was the beginning for me of a necklace of diamonds that only God and I can see. You know, they say diamonds are a girl's best friend. And I want to tell you my first one. I will run away from home, and I called Alcoholics Anonymous. And they said, lady, we can't help you, so we will give you. This lady will call you back. You give me the number, and she will call you back. And you know, she did. And her name was Selma, and she was a beautiful lady. And she's been around on 20-some years now. Her husband, George, just celebrated 25 years of sobriety. And, uh... She came and she talked to me, and uh, she offered to take me to a meeting that night, the way I looked. She never said I looked terrible. She never said anything wrong with the way I looked. She didn't even mention it. That I had by then seen a doctor and seen a new specialist, and uh, she came to talk to me, and she picked me up that night, and I walked into my first salon, I'm really looking like that, and nobody commented on my appearance. 
I can remember saying to a lady, I, I apologize for having on dark glasses because I had prescription glasses in future. She said, you ought to be grateful that you have dark glasses. You see, they didn't put up with any of my whining and sniveling and anything like that. They gave me tough love right from the word go. They said, just keep coming back. You know, I don't remember much about that meeting, but they got me all, they gave me all the literature. If I'd had to buy it, I couldn't afford it. I got my one day at a time book that night. I lost my fear of my husband that night. Now, I met a little bitty lady. I don't know, but she thought, why are they always little bitty ladies? And she said to me, she shared with me at the break how she lost her fear. She said, I just waited until he was sobering up and feeling real remorseful. And I looked him right in the eye and I said, just remember, you've got to sleep sometimes. And I thought, God, that sounds really good. And uh, I got real arrogant and independent. I went home that night and I read that one day at a time book from first page to last page. And it was like they were looking in my bedroom window all those years. That's how that book had been written. I slept for the first time. First time. And I learned to sleep an hour and a half. I, uh, and I waited. You see, I got real independent. I waited for here for one of those opportunities to come, and it did. And, you know, uh, we had tried everything, and I had gone back time after time after time after time. And uh, uh, I waited, and he was uh, pretty sick this one morning, and he was apologizing for his behavior, and I just looked him right in the eye and said, uh, you know, you're never going to touch me again, because uh, just remember, you have to sleep sometime. And uh, uh, I had a ball bat in my hand when I said it, and uh, I was really sick. And... Uh, he became a nervous sleeper. Uh, he would doze off, start to doze off on the couch or in the chair or on the floor, and uh, and he would drift to see where I was in the room. And uh, But you know, it ended, you see, because I lost my fear then. I knew that I had a choice. No one told me I had a choice, you know. No one ever told me I had a choice. I thought it was for better, for worse, you know, love me, beat me, kiss me, but don't leave me, you know. Uh, that seems to be an all on theme song before we get here. And... Uh, but I never knew that I had choices, you know. And uh, I learned all that in here. That was the beginning of my diamond necklace, you see. I, they got me very busy in Al-Anon. I became secretary of my home group my first 30 days in Al-Anon because the gal that was secretary, she was here in the middle of the table. She said, if no one will volunteer, the meeting will close because if you're not going to be responsible, you don't deserve it. And I raised my hand. I said, well, what does the secretary do? She said, no, much." She said, you uh you get here early, you set up, you make the coffee, you set up the literature, you collect the money, you, you uh, are responsible for closing up and for being here every Thursday, and you also get to get all the leaders and speakers for a whole year. Now that's all I heard was leaders and speakers, because in that short 30 days time, I had been to 45 Al-Anon meetings, and I did not have a car at my disposal. They took me everywhere. I am so grateful for that. Because I had a husband who'd come out there and stand and look and say, Ha-ha, I knew it. You're not giving me any at home. You're giving it to those women. And so, you see, it starts to fight. And instead of fighting, I would say, perhaps you're right. And I would go off my merry way. And uh, and I was taking care of myself at home. I I was learning my sponsor. I got that same lady that called on me for my first sponsor. And she said, Carol, I'm going to do for you what they did for me. And uh, just for this week, you get to go home and practice being happy at home. And I said, you got to be kidding. She said, no, uh, home's where you got the problem, so home's where you get to practice. And uh, so I would whistle and I would sing while I was cooking and singing. And, 
and doing all these things, and I can remember he would be so drunk, and he would start real not happy, and I'd say, yes, I am, and, uh, but uh, I know today I was real arrogant about it, because I just loved it, and it was the, it was the first time that I got, was that I knew that I, was, that I could laugh, and uh, that I could uh, learn these things. The second thing she taught me to do, was she said, I want you to find a God who understands and she said, I want you to begin by looking in the mirror every morning, and to tell yourself that you love and I said, I can't do that, you know. I said, uh, I just can't. And she said, yeah, you can. You just start by saying you like yourself because God don't make junk. He don't take junk. He did not want me. You see. And I, so I would look in that mirror and I would start and I would feel real foolish. But I can tell you this. Whatever I was told to do, I find because it worked. It worked. And those people are still here, so I know it worked. And that was the beginning of growth for me. My third assignment was to go home and tell my children that I loved them out loud. I said, they know I love them. I've always been between them and the dad. She said, no, that's, that's, that's not what I mean. She said, I don't care how little or how big, how old or how young, children as well as your parents need to be told that you love them out loud. And so I started that. And let me tell you, that was another diamond for my mother. You see, they don't know. Kids don't know. Your parents don't know. Your friends don't know. Your family doesn't know. So we get to tell them, or I got to tell them. And it worked. It worked for me. Because one of the biggest things I got was six years that I've been in this program. I called my father every single week. And I would tell him at the end of the conversation, Dad, I love you. And he would say, you're a good kid, plunk. And uh, six years into this program, I said, Dad, I love you. And he said, I love you too. And he hung up. And that was my second time. I went flying to the meetings to share that because you see it worked one more time for me. I got to go all over Southern California because I started a 12 step town. It was a very popular town. There were five, five ladies in there. We were from all walks of life and we got to share how we worked these steps together. And my favorite steps are four, five, and six because it freed me from all the, the debris of my past. I have no secrets today. You know, they say you're only as sick as your secrets. I got none today. I have no secrets in my life. Uh, I took God everywhere with me, everywhere with me. And I found out that he practiced the best relief program in the world with me. He let me go until I chose to take him with me. And when I found out that he was a lover and that he laughed and he wanted only one thing for me, to live, laugh, and be happy. And that's what he wants me to do. And you see, that's what I get to learn. I learned that love and kindness is the only language that the deaf can hear and the blind can see. And you see, I didn't know that. I thought I was being kind and loving because I did everything. But you see, I denied all those people in my family who didn't feel their own mistakes. And I try real hard not to do that today. That's another diamond. It is not easy for me to release my children. That's the diamond. When one of them lives out of state, the one that I think needs this program because he feels exactly like I did as a kid. You see, he's 30 years old. He's a loving, wonderful, warm, handsome man. And he feels I keep nothing. And I know that it's not so much living with his father, but it's the direct result of living with his mother and my disease. And you see, he knows that he has knowledge. He knows where I come from. He knows where I stand. God and I got to get a divorce. It was not a friendly suit. First, we had to find him. And uh, it was the only decision that I had ever made in my entire life that I was comfortable with. I had done a lot of praying, a lot of writing, and I went to a program attorney. And I want to tell you something about that. If you need anything at all in your life, there are program people who can do it for you, and I trust them. I trust them. And he saves me a lot of pain with my children, and he saves me a lot of pain with my husband. And I got that divorce, and I got to do a lot of things that continued my necklace. 
I got to go for a food stamp, and that was beneath my dignity, but it was necessary to put me where I am today. You see, I learned to be responsible for Carol and responsible for those children. I learned to support myself. I'd been doing it for years, just didn't know it. And uh, I learned to do all those things, which added one more diamond to my necklace. I stayed in Allen on single. That's the diamond, let me tell you. Too many of us come in here and think you're rid of the problem, and then you go out, and what you do is you find another one. The grass is not greener out there. It's only wetter. And uh, it's just the way it is. And so if you're really smart and you get anything at all out of this program, it's to find out who the enemy is. And I can tell you who mine is. It's right here. It's right here. And it's right here between my head. Even today, you give me a little time to think, and I think negative most of the time. And that's the diamond. I don't do that today. But I don't do it. I stayed and I got to date some, uh, uh, some alcoholics who were not prompting to prove. <laughs> and, uh, and that was a lot of fun. If you try, uh, dating, remember how awful it was to learn to date at 16, try it at 42, you know. Uh, it's, it's a real, uh, it doesn't change any older. I didn't, uh, date for a long time after I got to this program. I didn't even know I was supposed to. I was so busy in the program that I didn't have time. I was on this channel. We traveled all over. Southern California, we had lots of fun. It was a panel built of love, and even today, after all these years, the five of us get together, and it's just like uh, we're closer and have seen each other yesterday, and we don't see each other for months on time, and it's wonderful. You have become the love relatives that I've never had in my life. You're closer to me than my blood relatives, and that's the diamond. You see, I don't have to go anywhere in the world alone, and that's the diamond. I always have program with me, and that's the diamond. I, uh, I dated an ordinary human being. I was hoping Charlotte would be here today. <laughs> and I found him very boring. But, uh, because after you say how's the weather, the job, and the kids, there's nothing to talk about. Because when I find out that one of the diamonds here is we talk gut level feelings. I can understand where you are and where you've been by looking at your eyes. Because I believe it's an eye program. I think after you've done your fourth step with someone who has done a written fourth step, and listen to a fifth step with ears of love that I find necessary to hear that, uh, then you can tell from the people you hang out with who has and who hasn't. You don't even need to ask because I think that's the moment of truth. And, and you know, it doesn't say when they read the steps, they don't say one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. If we were smart, we would not be afraid of the fourth step. We'd be afraid of the fifth. But we're not that smart, at least I wasn't. My fifth step enables me to trust another human being for the first time in my life, and it has grown from there. I trust everybody I meet, an alcoholic, anonymous, Al-Anon, or Al-Anon. That's just the way it is today. That's the way I get to live, and that's the diamond. When I had been in this program almost uh, eight years, and uh, I had learned that having cupolitis is not all bad. Cupolitis is when you go to the dances and the potlucks and the everything and everybody in the world is a couple but you and uh, everybody in the world is married but you and that's not true there are a lot of happy single people functioning out there and i'll tell you another diamond when i was comfortable in my job as a single person comfortable as a single mother comfortable as a single grandmother comfortable in all areas of my life god sent me a friend and that was a diamond i met that since on the steps of the church that i was attending an alpine wedding Two Alpines had grown up and fallen in love, and they were getting married, and I had known those two since they were about 12 years old. I never knew who their parents were, because I don't know. That was a diamond. The man that I was uh, dating at the time, and had been dating for a couple of years, 
chose not to go to that because he's an ordinary person. I don't believe anybody's normal. I don't know about you. There are ordinary people out there that have a workable faith and seem to get along. Maybe if Moses would have said, well, the ten suggested commandments, I'd have made it. But uh, I needed the 12 steps, and uh, it's as simple as that. So when I was comfortable in all areas of my life, and I was comfortable being single, and I was comfortable in everything I did, I went to that wedding, you know, he chose not to go with me. And I re-met a man that I had met years years before when I was a member of that panel. And uh, uh, God has a real sense of humor. You know, when I was on that panel, all those girls were kept women. They all got to stay home, and I was the only one working. And so I would be out very late at night and have to come home. And, and uh, now here it is years later, and uh, we got together for a fundraiser one time a year or so ago. And, and I found out that all those women are working, and I'm a kept woman. Now, how's that for God? You understand? And yeah, I love it. But anyway, uh, I got to re-meet Dick. I knew that I had met him. I went up and gave him a big kiss and said, hi, Dick. He said, hi, Carol. And, uh, and, uh, my, my roommate, I was sharing a, uh, was sharing a home with another Alan. And let me tell you, that's tough if you can stand it with an alcoholic. So I'll try another Alan. He's not working a program. That's my opinion. And, uh, but anyway, uh, she said, where do you know him from? I said, I don't know, but I know him. And she said, well, you met him. And I said, no, no. And when I got to the wedding reception, uh, and I want to tell you how my God works in my life. He made me look so good that day. I had on my best bowling dress. I mean, and I had a nice tan. And I had, uh, my hair was short. And uh, I just looked wonderful. And I felt wonderful. And Dick walked in the door of that reception with a short, blonde, voluptuous lady. And I almost died. <laughs> and uh, so I said to the mother of the bride, as soon as she goes to the ladies' room, I am going to go over and give Dick my card. And they said, she wouldn't do that. You know, you talk to control him, but she wouldn't do that. And I said, yeah, yeah, I would, because today I'm willing to risk, and he's what I want. And, you know, that's what I did. I outweighed it. He finally had to uh, I made a thousand trips uh, waiting on everybody so I could pass by Dick. And uh, I'll tell you, my God does have a sense of humor. He gave Dick bad eyes. And uh, I'm not going to get him fixed so he's about 85. Because he thought I looked too young for him. <laughs> and uh, so anyway, I went over and gave him my car. And I said, Dick, if you're ever in the harbor, or way of uh, give me a call. And he said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, so uh, I went home and waited. And, uh, and I waited. And uh, I couldn't stand for anyone I sponsored to call me. I couldn't stand for my sponsor to call me. And she said to me, uh, Carol, what's the matter with you? I said, nothing. I just, you know, I'm just fine. And uh, I just wanted her off the phone. And I wanted the line cleared. But, you know, he was going to call, right? And she said, you know what you're doing with uh, Dick Thornton? You're doing the same thing with him you did with your husband. You are waiting for someone else to make you happy. And that was another line in the too. He said, if that's what you want in your life, you write his name, put it in your God box. And you get back into the mainstream of living where you belong. And that's what I did. I attended an Alcoholics Anonymous open speaker meeting for all the years that I've been in for eight years, up until the time I married. And I sat in the same place because it was where my sponsor took me on Friday night but after that first meeting. And that's the diamond. I didn't want anyone sitting in my chair. I felt that I had earned that chair. I learned just as much in Alcoholics Anonymous that saved me and removed so much pain from my life because that's where I learned about blackout drinking and that's the diamond. That's where I learned that all the things that happened in my home, a lot of those things were not remembered and that's the diamond. You see, I knew nothing about that kind of things. I had big emotional blackouts in my life and that's no deal. That's just no big deal. You know, that's just ordinary behavior for me and I'm grateful for that. But uh, 
When time passed and I was going on a trip up north and I had uh, a date to go to the airport and I had a date on the other end and wouldn't you know both of them were practicing alcoholics, of course, because they're just charming, they're just wonderful people and I haven't met one yet that I didn't love. And uh, so uh, the girl that I worked with was a member of that panel and Bial came out of her office and she said, Carol, I don't want you to go to that uh, I don't want you to go on this trip up north. And I said, you know, it's crazy. And she said, I don't know why I have funny vines. She said, I just think I'll cancel the trip and stay home. I had a five-day trip planned with my parents and uh, my children up there. And uh, she said, I've never asked you to do anything for me in my life, in my whole life. And I'm asking you not to go. And so you know what I did? I didn't go. I phoned and canceled those reservations. I went home that night. And after our tough week at work, I went to bed. And I was leaving in bed when the phone rang. And the minute that phone rang, before I even picked it up, I knew who it was. It was Dick. And he talked, and he talked, and he talked about an hour, and uh, God, I just love him. He's a real sexy boy, besides all the other things. And uh, uh, he uh, he said that being uh, so cunning and baffling, he said to me, uh, he wanted to know how old I was, of course. And because uh, the lady he was with was a lot younger than he is. He won't tell you that, but I will. <laughs> and he said to me, uh, uh, tell how old are your children? And I said, how old are you, Dick? And uh, he said, yeah, I am 50. And I said, well, that's marvelous, because I'm 49. And you see, uh, he asked me out on a first date. And uh, I don't know if you know anything about Bobby McGee, but that's where he took me. And uh, it's a crazy place in California. And uh, we closed that place, drinking coffee and talking. And, uh, and I began uh, dating Dick. And I, I had already fallen in love with him. And I knew that's what I wanted in my life. Because you see... Uh, I was the only time I ever kept a relationship in one day at a time. I, uh, I enjoyed every single, single minute of that relationship. Uh, we got to date like teenagers. We got to fall in love. And uh, I got engaged and I got my ring on Halloween and all good wishes did it. <laughs> and we uh, thought for a little bit about running off to Las Vegas. Here we are. And uh, we decided that we would be cheating. I love relatives. Not so much our blood relatives. But we have so many friends in this program that wish the very best for both of us. They knew Dick. They knew he had lost his life. He was also a member of Alanar, and they also knew her. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, our wedding had over 600 love relatives there. And, uh, they were all grateful that I was getting married, I'm sure. And, uh, I live in a marvelous, marvelous program home today, and that's the diamond. I have a husband today who tells me that he loves me, and I love him, and we believe one another, and that's the diamond. When he calls me at 6 o'clock and tells me he's going to be five minutes late, he's five minutes late, and that's a diamond. I trust him with my life, and he with mine, and that's a diamond. We put each other before our children, his children, my children. I put this before mine, he puts me before his, and that's a diamond. We do no babysitting, and that's a diamond. <laughs> All our children have been married longer than we have. And so, uh, we did, we even went to premarital counseling. And one of the things that Pastor told us in second, third, fourth, whatever the lady said yesterday, marriages, is that there are two things that cause problems in, in marriages, and that's children and money, and it always comes in that area. I know today that in releasing children, if the children are out there having fun, you won't hear from them. If they're in trouble, they'll call. And they'll find you no matter where they are. That's a diamond. I live in a program home. That's a diamond. We live in PWPs today, cops without program, that's a question. Uh, there are a lot of PWPs, people without program out there, and I'll tell you what I want to do. You see, this necklace of diamonds gives me a God that loves me no matter what I do, whether I'm naughty or nice, he loves me. 
and I want to be the very best Carol I can be today. I am comfortable in my skin today without anything else. And that's the diamond. I wear an 11. That was a gift to my husband on my 50th birthday. And it might not mean much to you, but that's a 10 that never gets a headache. And that's a diamond. <laughs> From a closet dresser, that's a big deal. And uh, we have a lot of love and laughter in our home, and that's a diamond. Our home is open to everyone today, and that's a diamond. I uh, have a lot of fun with sponsorship today, and that's a diamond. I only have one rule in sponsorship. I used to have three. I ask them to call before they speak. That's the diamond. Uh, I have a mafia squad in, in Al-Anon, and I don't know about you, but when I, uh, all the time I was uh, growing up in this marriage, I always wanted to weigh about 900 pounds and be 10 feet tall for five minutes so that I could give him a road hole just for two seconds or so. And uh, I am so sick, and I know that, that I have to tell you about my mafia squad. It's called Magnificent Al-Anon Stitcher and uh, I collect husband beaters. And uh, I'm <laughs> I just love them. Because they're always so tiny. And the guys are always so big. And uh, so I collect them. And uh, as friends and uh, love relatives. And so I have this mafia squad that I sponsor. And in case anybody's giving you trouble, you can finish your name. <laughs> My children got to see their father sober this Christmas. The first time he had seen his children in 11 years. That was a diamond. I did not have to blow up LAX. That was a diamond. Uh, I, I can travel anywhere and be comfortable today, and that's a diamond. I am so blessed to be here today because I don't know how to thank you for my life, you see. This is my third chance at living, and I do not intend to screw it up. I stay as close to this program as I possibly can by making myself available to be wherever I'm at. And I'm speaking, I share with you the things that have given me my necklace of diamonds and it's love relatives like you that continue to make it so. Thank you.